the radiant light behind me. <laughs> you better, yeah. You're getting a sunburn on the <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I'll stop. It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Welcome back, Phil. I'm glad to have you on the channel again. Um, and today, what would you like to talk to us about? Well, last time we talked, I mentioned the crisis I had of being a Christian minister and chaplain for over 30 years, not really having the spiritual development that I had desired, going into yoga meditation primarily for stress management, stress and pain management. And then having a whole new world, a whole new world of spiritual experience and realization open, and then the kind of inner transformation that I wanted in terms of of character and so forth, and then being in a crisis of, you know, am I a Jesus person or a yoga person? Because the the yoga meditation worked where my former practice of Christianity had not worked. All right. And then I think, if I remember correctly, I talked about the experience I had when I was a hospice chaplain of reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, that very famous verse. I was reading this to a hospice patient, you know, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest unto your soul. And I... I had this amazing inner experience of when I said the word yoke, which comes from the same root word that yoga comes from, my understanding of the New Testament, my understanding of Jesus, his teachings, his ministry, the symbols of his life, everything harmonized with my understanding and experience of the divine in yoga, mm -hmm. through yoga practice. It all became one thing. And... At that point, I realized that I didn't have to necessarily choose between the two, but to live in that harmonious space where they both joined. Right. Now, you know, there are people, Yogananda was one, there are people who believe that Jesus during what's called the missing years, um, you know, in the New Testament, there's that incident where he, as a, it's described, an incident in the temple when he was a child, and then... All of a sudden, boom, he's an adult getting ready to start his teaching mission and mission. And the question is, where was he all those years? And <clears throat> many have speculated that he traveled, went to India, studied with yoga masters, went to other areas and studied with uh, Buddhist teachers and so forth. Very scant evidence for that, but uh, Yogananda did have that position. To me, it doesn't matter. I, I probably take the position that both yoga and Jesus taught what's been referred to as the perennial philosophy. Right. So 
there has just always been this core spiritual teaching from the beginning and that has been at the heart of virtually every genuine spiritual tradition. And so whether there was an actual connection between Jesus and yoga masters or whether both yoga and Jesus are expressions of the perennial philosophy, it doesn't really matter to me. The, the point is the teaching, the truth is harmonious. Right. And in, you know, our, our current culture, and I'm guess I'm going to kind of tie that into the last 2000 years or so, you know, I can read these texts and, and you read these texts and, and you can see references to uh, yogic ideas. You know, we, we talked about, for example, non-attachment being one of the primary uh, issues there. But what I've always been curious about is, is it simply because we already have that kind of uh, outlook that we're able to see that? Because, you know, people have been reading the Bible for, as we've said, you know, 2000 years or, or less, I suppose, depends on when it was put together. But, um, you know, why is it that it hasn't come through when so many people have been reading it? How come it hasn't, that perennial philosophy hasn't popped through in our current uh, modern culture more easily, do you think? Well, I'm going to give you an example. I'll give you a very concrete example here in a minute, but I've, I've spent over 40 years in Christian ministry of one sort or another, and I've experienced, uh, I've had the experience of interacting with ministers, priests of the complete range of Christian religions and have been to numerous you know, services and conferences and so on and so forth. And it's very clear to me that that most Christian religions, virtually every Christian religion, has a theology, has a point of view. Hmm. And that is typically imposed on the text of the New Testament rather than being able to come to the text of the New Testament fresh and to be able to uh, see clearly or discern what it was that Jesus was really teaching, what the events of his life really meant. Uh, in almost all cases, a, a formed theological perspective is imposed on the New Testament text. Okay. So it's not seen clearly. And when something gets distorted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, then it's just assumed that that is the, the, the point of view. And I'll give you, I mean, here's an example. I, even though I always sensed truth and life in Jesus, I was never really comfortable about many of the traditional Christian teachings. I'll just mention two. Okay. <clears throat> Number one, the idea that God requires the suffering and torture of an innocent person, <laughs> a pure person, to be able to forgive sins. Right. And... Just that fact, aside from presenting a very disturbing characterization of the nature of God, it now makes salvation, redemption, liberation, an external activity. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other thing, of course, the other thing it does too, is it makes sin as the primary problem. And the yoga scriptures are very clear that it is ignorance of one's true nature that's the primary problem. Sin, what we would call a sin, aberrant, dark, uh, unhealthy, unproductive, uh, 
evil behavior is a symptom of a person not knowing their true nature and not living out of that. So, mm. you know, in yoga teaching, if you correct the attachment to a false identity, then the divine nature, which is within us, begins to unfold and becomes more influential. And then the things that we call sin fade away. Most Christians spend all their life on trying to deal with sin. The awareness of the true nature of the self is never corrected. And so, you know, as a hospice chaplain, I was sat with dying, hundreds of dying people. And at the end, they're all disturbed. They didn't get hold of or conquer certain sins or they don't didn't feel they received the grace of god enough to be able to overcome sin and and uh, you know sadly they die of quite a bit distressed right so sin isn't the major problem it's a symptom and i believe jesus taught that the other issue was that that salvation in the kingdom of god is something that's way off in the future if you do the right thing according to the particular religion. And for some reason that just kind of always bothered me. And, and so I was quite pleasantly surprised when I'm going to say through yogic guys, I suddenly awakened to the fact that Jesus was not teaching about a salvation in a kingdom of God that was off in the future somewhere. Mm-hmm but that he taught a the reality of a present moment kingdom into which he was inviting us so you know his first statement as he went out to preach was repent for the kingdom of god is at hand i mean at hand it's right here hmm. and repent which has, again has been taken over by uh, a misguided Christian theology doesn't mean to just stop doing bad and start doing good or to believe in a particular thing so God will bless you. The, the word repent literally in the Greek means an inner transformation of mind and heart. Hmm. And it's that kind of inner transformation that, see, awakens you so that you can see the kingdom at hand, the present kingdom. Right. Um, right before his death, when he's talking to Pilate, <clears throat> and he says, oh, Pilate says to him, oh, are you a king? And he says, well, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning it's a spiritual reality beyond space and time. Mm-hmm. So once you have that shift in awareness and you start seeing the actual meaning of what Jesus was saying, you, you suddenly realize it's it's in harmony with this perennial philosophy uh, and, and, and philosophy. And so with that, you know, in the yoga sutras, there is the statement that's pretty clear stating that these root causes of pain that we experience, the, the reason that we have this pain is directly related to a lack of self-awareness Absolutely. and and once, once self-awareness is present, then these root causes of pain start to fall away. So when we think about, for example, the teachings of Jesus, when he discusses, you know, I and the Father are one, is that a way of sort of making that similar statement of, of you know, become aware of what is true and live from that? Well, yes. And then 
again, right before his death in this great prayer in John chapter 17, where he's praying for his disciples and all those who would, would trust in him in the future, his prayer is that they might become one in him as he is one in the Father. Hmm. And, of course, the practice of yoga meditation is to consciously enter into that oneness and it's in that realization of oneness that we experience the true nature of God. And then in the reflection of the true nature of God, we awaken to that divine nature within ourselves. And that is what creates the inner transformation. That's what gives us... Um, power over sin so to speak without that inner transformation it's a it's a fruitless struggle and you know forgive me if i if i'm jumping ahead because i feel like i'm jumping way ahead because i'm getting ready to bring up the idea of the crucifixion <laughs> oh. <laughs> but you know when we th when you think about the crucifixion we think about jesus's life as the story of a man's life okay well then it definitely seems very cruel when we think about you know how god does things um but even in uh hindu tradition you know they have uh the goddess kali and she's considered to be in a sense the most horrendous uh ugly vicious kind of power but you have to go through that power to experience clarity and when you're identified with an ego or the small sense of self of, you know, you are Phil, I am Ryan, I'm a little body that's going to die and perish. Um, well, then coming up against Kali or, or kind of going into a divine state seems utterly terrifying because in order to be able to experience that, you have to let go of the small sense of self. And then with resurrection, it seems to me, or not the resurrection, pardon me, with the um, uh, crucifixion, it seems to me that that is a clear symbol of a very similar kind of experience that, you know, in order to truly get a hold of that, in a sense for the ego, it feels like that kind of horrendous death experience. Um, is, is that something that, that you've explored as well? And did I jump too far ahead? No, I agree completely. And, you know, you have Jesus saying to take up your cross and follow me. So he's inviting us to follow him to the cross. Well, whoa, can I follow you to the kingdom? I mean, can we go? <laughs> <laughs> right. Can we go direct to that spiritual Disneyland? Do we have to go to this cross thing? Well, yes, you do. Because the, the crucifixion, in the crucifixion, Jesus dramatizes and it's not just drama. I mean, he was killed and tortured because he opposed the political and religious authorities of his day. But, mm -hmm. but in that is the dramatization of the death, the crucifixion of the false nature, of the false identity, of the egoic identity. To, to follow Jesus to the cross is to um, surrender yourself to the the death of the false identity and it's only when that is moved out of the way that the new life is is uh, realized you know we awaken to the new life and we realize the new life when we allow the false sense of self to be crucified 
So, you know, the, the day, two days ago, I was actually talking with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Norton, who's a, a retired Methodist minister, and he's been a good friend for a long time. He's recently come into meditation, and I was talking to him about this interview we were about to go into. Um, and we started, we, we started discussing, well, all right, if what, if what you just said is true and accurate, and it seems true and accurate for the Christian path, it seems true and accurate for the yogic path, um, how was it that, that Jesus uh, indicated that one either prepares or readies oneself to do that or even becomes willing to do that? You know, in yoga and meditation, we have well meditation, which allows us to slowly and hopefully incrementally pull away from identification with the small sense of self. What is it in this uh, Christian path, this Christian mysticism that would help one move in that direction instead of just saying, oh, hell no, you know, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm actually going to move into that. I'm, I'm going to try to demonstrate here how the path as it is summarized in yogic scriptures, is the same path that Jesus presented. Okay. Um, so I'll tell you what, let me mention just two things that were help, helpful for me to get centered on Jesus properly, and then we'll move directly into the, the, this idea of path, what exactly is the practice. Okay. Um, the, the other thing that that was very helpful to me, aside from realizing that Jesus was inviting us into a present spiritual reality and not a future external kingdom, um, was an episode that happened in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 17, where he is, as usual, in conflict with the religious leaders of his day who were presenting the spiritual path as a purity code, as external actions that would prompt God to bring in the future kingdom. And he's in conflict with them. And because he'd been talking so much about the kingdom, they're now challenging him. Okay, you're so smart. You know, you know so much about God and the kingdom. Um, show us the kingdom. You know, where is it? When, when's it coming? <laughs> and he said, um, he says, don't look, uh, he says, the kingdom cometh not with observation. You know, don't say low here and low there as if it's out there somewhere. You're not going to observe it as, a, as an event in space and time. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That's the King James translation. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God is within you. Well, if you look at most modern Bible translations and if you look at most modern Bible commentaries, they hate that phrase <laughs> and they, they translate it differently to get away from that because, and if you listen to some of the commentaries, they will say, certainly he didn't mean the kingdom is within you. That's Eastern teaching. You know, that's, that's Hindu Buddhist nonsense. And because the word, the Greek word there is entos because it can be translated as within or among. They prefer among. And so that verse reads in most Bible translations, the kingdom of God is among you. Hmm. And it's normally interpreted as Jesus referring to himself, that here I am, 
the representative of the kingdom and I'm walking among you, relating to you, talking to you. And uh, what strengthened that position was, look, he's talking to bad people, evil people who are trying to set him up to kill him. So certainly the kingdom of God wasn't within them. Hmm. So they move away from that, that uh, statement. Well, okay. The perennial philosophy is that the nature of God is within each person. Most people are ignorant of that. And as a result of that live out of a false sense of self, which has a very dark side. Mm -hmm. And so there is all kinds of, of, uh, of evil and cruel behavior. That doesn't mean that, that divine nature still isn't in that person who is overwhelmed by ignorance. Number two, if you look at the context of his statement in the whole passage, he's talking about outside, inside. The, the kingdom cometh not with observation. You see, it's not out here. The other place where that Greek word entos is used is when Jesus, talking to the same group of people, says, who's accusing them of having impure hearts and minds, he says to them, clean the inside of the cup or the bowl first that the outside might be clean. Hmm. Again, that same word is used in an inside-outside context. So this preference for the translation of among is clearly not in the context of the passage. This is, again, where theology is imposed on either the translation or the interpretation of the text. Hmm. There's no question Jesus meant within you when you look at the context because he sets up an outside inside dichotomy okay. the other thing that was very very important to me is this episode in the gospel of john chapter three when one of the pharisees uh one of the religious leaders of the day uh sneaks out to meet jesus at night and wants to have a personal conversation with him because many of those leaders saw a depth of spirituality in him that they weren't experiencing anywhere else, but they couldn't affirm him because it would put him in, in a difficult situation of being criticized. But in any case, this Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, wants to have a conversation with him. I make the assumption that he want, he thinks the conversation is going to be very similar to the kind of conversation he has with the other religious leaders, which is what's good, what's bad, how do you get rid of sin, what's pure, what's impure, what can we do to live in a right way so God will bring his king, his future kingdom quicker. That's the kind of conversations they had. So he tries to start that with Jesus. Jesus cuts that whole line of discussion off and says to him, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again which in the greek could also be translated born from above hmm. which has a lot of uh you know kind of inner mystical meaning um and nicodemus says uh well holy cow uh i'm an old man how, how do i go back into my mother's womb and come back out again right <laughs> um he's being a little facetious he, he knows jesus isn't talking about a literal physical rebirth but that was his way of, uh, of tweaking Jesus to get him to expand the teaching and uh, Jesus goes on to say he, he doesn't really deal with it 
in that context because if he said yes or no, it would be misunderstood. So he goes on to say that whosoever is born of water and spirit will enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's clear that birth is an inner process, right? Right. Um, the fetus develops and grows inside the womb. And as far as I'm concerned, the presence of God is the womb of creation. Mm. And it is the presence of God is the womb of inner transformation, awakening, rebirth. And you can see where Jesus has a process here because he says to him, twice you must be born again to see the kingdom and then he says you must be born of water of spirit to enter the kingdom so there's a process of first seeing it and then entering it mm -hmm. and the entering is associated with this uh, baptism of spirit or fire so you know this was my exact experience in meditation i i felt like i was going into the presence of god the womb of god and and as my practice deepened, suddenly I'm seeing the kingdom. In other words, I'm becoming aware of the deeper reality. I'm becoming aware of the, of the spiritual reality that undergirds the manifest world. I'm seeing clearly, experiencing clearly the presence, nature, and character of God. It's a little frustrating because when I get out of meditation, I'm still kind of impatient and attached to physical things and trying to control the world around me so it's pleasurable and not painful. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm seeing the kingdom, but I obviously haven't entered it yet because I'm still struggling with my limited false sense of self. Mm -hmm. But through the path, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, through the path, that seeing becomes an entering. And that inner transformation starts to play, take place. And then suddenly you're living the present moment kingdom life or reality of, of spiritual life. Um, so in all of these key moments in Jesus' teaching, it is so obvious to me that what he is teaching is absolutely in harmony with what, you know, what we're calling yoga teaching. Well, I've got two two questions, one smaller, one bigger. Um, number one, uh, when you talk about what you're going to say about this idea of the path, uh, my first smaller question is, is this going to uh, is this going to include that overarching consistent theme that runs through yogic literature of of, of non-attachment? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's it, I have so much of it, you might just shut me down <laughs> no 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 i i think it's very i think it's very important i'm glad that you do because you know for example um when i see some people teaching yoga and meditation and oftentimes there's this emphasis and focus on oh well you know focus on being more abundant and having more wealth and these sorts of things and how that that helps you you know demonstrate your experience with divinity and as i've gone through the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, various texts, nowhere does it say that. No. No. <laughs> nowhere does it say that. So, no. so, so the idea of non-attachment is, is very difficult because here it's saying, you know, well, we'll, we'll see because I'm, I'm really no. looking forward to that. But the no. other question, which is a little bit uh, more involved maybe and uh, might come a little later, uh, you know, Sri Yukteswar, when he talks in um, 
the holy science, uh, he brings up the idea of the word of God, the vibration of God, and, and he attributes that to uh, Om. And in meditation, you know, there is the process where we learn to hear that that constant tone, that constant sound, and um, that's referred to as the the pranava. And he attributes that to be the, the holy word of God. And there's this uh, this text here: "These things saith the Amen." the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And Sri points out that this is when you go deeply into meditation, you're able to relax and stay alert and, and hear and absorb yourself in this sound, that that is like, uh, that is like this knocking. And then he follows up with, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that phrase I focus on is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And in, in yogic literature, there's this emphasis towards becoming calm and quiet and turning your attention within to that core. And when you're able to withdraw your awareness from the noise of the wilderness, then you're able to hear this inner tone, this inner om, this inner amen. And in that, that is a, a method of, of, of rebirth, a method of sort of baptizing oneself as you're describing. Um, is, this, is this how you would, I, I'm just curious how you feel, what your thoughts are on that kind of idea. Yeah, I, I like that idea. Yogananda, of course, even actually used the expression Holy Spirit mm -hmm. to refer to the Om vibration. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the fire, the inner purifier. And so as, as we abide in the Om vibration, referred to in some places as the evidential aspect of God, mm -hmm. as we abide in that vibration or... And some people, again, are able to perceive that vibration as an inner sound. Uh, I think others uh, perceive it as a as a presence, as a mm -hmm. kind of a living, moving presence. But regardless of how it's experienced, its effect is purifying. By right. purifying, I mean it breaks up the the patterns, the attachments, the perspectives that keep people locked in the false sense of self it breaks those up and then as one awakens to the deeper truer sense of self do you see it 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 gives life to that well it it, it brings up another idea is that you know, in the yoga sutras there is a specific statement that says listening to contemplating om removes all obstacles yes and so it speaks to what you're saying and then you mentioned that um the om is considered to be the evidential aspect of god and that brings me back to this this phrase here where it says about john that he was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light and when i hear that it seems to me like that as though he was the evidential aspect symbolically but was pointing towards the actual experience. And when we learn to meditate on Om, then we finally 
gain the direct experience of the light or the spirit or you know, however we want to conceive of it. Is that? Yeah, I, I really like that. And from a mystical Christian perspective, because Jesus abided in that, because Jesus was at one with that, because Jesus lived in that reality and in that presence, his person itself was an evidential aspect of God. He's right. living it out in the flesh, in the body as we are supposed to. Uh, so Jesus, the man Jesus himself, do you see, represents his, his life is also that evidential aspect of God. In right. The world. Yeah. And, and, and maybe this leads into where you're going with the, the practice and non-attachment. But, you know, so many people, I think, don't actually hear that own vibration or are able to appreciate it because, you know, as Jesus sort of implies, you kind of have to leave everything behind. And it's extremely hard to hear that voice in the wilderness, that ohm, if you're distracted by everything. So that practice of learning, again, it's a practice, learning to turn within, let go of attachment to all the distractions. At least in my experience, that has been when that ohm vibration, that sound or that presence has been obviously heard when there was no focus on, you know, what Ryan thought was important or, you know, the, the, the small sense of self. So um, I'm, I'm guessing that leads into this idea of non-attachment that you have in mind. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, that is heard, perceived, discerned, experienced really only in stillness, certainly at first mm -hmm. until your perception is, is um, developed so well that the distractions don't, you know, aren't a barrier to you, but to virtually every human being, you know, all of our external focus, attachments, mental activity uh, certainly overshadow that. Right. So if you look in the, the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 6, verse 35, we have the verse, and I'm uh, quoting from Roy Davis's translation, undoubtedly the mind is unsteady and difficult to curb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... It can be mastered by yoga practice and non-attachment. So two things are mentioned here. Mm -hmm. Well, yoga practice, the, 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 the word used as practice refers to any yogic practice that, that um, brings us into a state of oneness with the true nature, with the true self. Um, it, it is any practice that I mean, earlier in, you know, in the Yoga Sutras, it talks about the true nature being overshadowed by the activity of the mind. Well, yoga practice is any, any practice, meditation being the core, that um, helps us to remove that overshadowing of mental activity and so forth and external mm -hmm. attachments. Uh, in... So even though it doesn't say meditation, some ver some translations translate it meditation because that's the core yoga practice. In the Yoga Sutras, in Book One, Verse Twelve, we've got uh, the troublesome influences of mental impressions should be restrained, weakened, and removed by meditation practice and dispassionate non-attachment. Mm -hmm. So Roy actually puts the word meditation in there because it's the core yoga practice. Uh, 
And that's a summary of the spiritual path. God communion in meditation, number one. Number two, the principle and practice of non-attachment. So here's a two-fold formula for the path. Now, the word for non-attachment in Sanskrit is vairagya. It means, we don't have a good word in English for this, but it literally means not colored. So it's clear, it's pure, not colored. If you if you put on a pair of glasses that are yellow tinted, which I do when I mow my grass every week, um, everything looks different. Everything has that yellow tint. Everything looks yellow. And it's not that everything is yellow, it's the glasses you have on. So <laughs> your vision is colored, you see. Mm-hmm. And the false sense of self, the attachments that we have color the way we see things. It's a distortion. It's a misperception. And it's our patterns of attachment and aversion that create our ego structure, which is the false sense of self. Mm-hmm. So, you know, non-attachment is, are, are, is a principle, and they are practices that work in conjunction with God communion and meditation that, that permit the awakening to the true nature, the awakening to the true nature, character, and presence of God. Uh, in Christian lingo, awakening to the inner kingdom. And um, so the question is, did Jesus practice these two steps on the path, God communion and non-attachment? Well, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Um, now, it's important to point out these aren't, purely separate practices these are two practices that work together mm-hmm. um, I mean it takes some level of non-attachment to even begin a meditation practice you've got to be willing to set aside time that you're not attached to doing something else or accomplishing something else as your inner as your meditation practice develops and the inner nature begins to unfold, then it becomes easier not to attach yourself to external things because your, your sense of self is becoming increasingly associated with the inner nature, the true nature. Mm-hmm. So then now it's easy to let go of things. It wasn't easy to let go of, of external things before because it's all you had. Exactly. If that's all you've got. You're not, you're not going to give it up. So, <laughs> In any case, um, non-attachment is strengthened by deepening self-awareness, and uh, self-awareness is facilitated and expanded as we let go of things that are really uh, impositions on the, the true sense of self. So what do we learn in the New Testament? We learn that Jesus gets up early in the morning by himself, and he goes up into the mountains to pray. <laughs> Whoa, who does that? Now, because Christians think prayer is talking, thinking and talking, you know, was Jesus. It's not? It's not. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) This this podcast was worth it for me just for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's another verse where it talks about Jesus going out and being up all night in prayer. Hmm. So, you know, 
from this typical view of prayer, he's doing a lot of talking all night long or several hours in the morning by himself. Mm-hmm. Well, this thinking, talking kind of prayer is one way of praying, so to speak. But prayer in its deepest expression is inner communion with God. Do you see? It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, as a matter of fact, the Aramaic word for prayer, which is shayat, it was used to, uh, for all different forms of prayer, for this talking, thinking kind of prayer, all the way up to pure communion, literally means to clear out a sacred space where you can wait and watch to be able to capture the presence of God. I mean, that's hmm. the literal meaning. Mm-hmm. So that, that gets lost when religion and thinking, talking prayers get imposed on these things. But what was Jesus doing? Clearly he was spending hours in God communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just no question that he was, that, that in my mind, that that was his core personal spiritual practice. Uh, living in the presence, the nature, the character of God, because he spent hours communing in that presence and was transformed by it and then abided in it because that became his true nature fully expressed. Um, And then the question is, did he teach the principle and practice of non-attachment? This is where I have some extensive material. First, I've taken four or five different verses and squished them into one expression to give you a flavor of this, but then I'm going to go step by step. Okay. But here's a, an expression, a summary of, of his teachings. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Mm-hmm. He that finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Seek you first, the kingdom of God for behold, the kingdom of God is within you and all these things. What, what are these things? These outside things you're so concerned about shall be added unto you. They come later, right? Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to be a primary focus. So anyway, here's a list. When I had the inner sense that Jesus taught the principle and practice of non-attachment. I then sat down and read the New Testament looking specifically for that. And what do I find? Well, here we go. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if anyone wants to take away your cloak, your tunic, let him have your, your cloak also. So, you know, if he wants to take your outer garment, give him the other inner garment too. Don't hold back. Uh, In Matthew 6, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Luke 12, he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, (laughs) which uh, (laughs) you made reference to that (laughs) earlier. So some people want to take the spiritual path and turn it into a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who amasses this great wealth. So in the text, he can have many years of ease, have all of his needs met. And it says so he can eat, drink, and be merry. But once the guy gets all this stuff, all of a sudden God comes and takes his life. And uh, Jesus says, okay, 
who will now have all this material abundance? Who's going to get all this stuff because he can't take it with him, see? Mm -hmm. So Jesus' conclusion is, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus is clearly talking about inner riches and not building up an abundance of material uh, riches. So if you take these three verses and say, okay, what is he communicating? Jesus is telling us, look, don't be attached to possessions, treasures, riches, or anything that can be destroyed or stolen in the material world. Mm -hmm. In Matthew, again, in Matthew 6, he says, uh, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you shall drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Um, in, in Matthew 5, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. <laughs> Uh, this isn't literal. This is spiritual teaching. So he's clearly saying, look, don't be attached to your body, to the evils that can be accomplished by the body or the excesses to which the body is inclined. Mm -hmm. Don't be attached to those things. And by, just to be clear, when you're using the term evil in this regard, we're simply speaking of those things which prevent one from appreciating that inner reality, correct? Well, yeah, that or even external behaviors that are contrary to the nature and character of the God. Yes, things that okay. are unhealthy, things that are unproductive, things that are harmful and cruel to life, to creatures, to people. All right. You know, these things are evil because they, they um, you know, things that we normally define as sin aren't bad because they're on a list somewhere, you know, up in heaven or up on a mount, top mountain somewhere, they're, they're sinful. They're bad because they strengthen the false sense of self. Right. Um, I was teaching a class at Center for Spiritual Awareness one time, and, and I, was I was starting to use words like um, sin and evil. I mean, there's a verse in the Katha Upanishad that says you're not going to awaken if you don't desist from unrighteous living. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was I was building on that verse, and this lady got all upset, and she started yelling out at me, "Who are you to decide what's <laughs> right and wrong and good and bad and so forth?" And I said, "Look, I I'm not trying to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I'm trying to point out that the things that we normally refer to as evil, or the things that we normally refer to as sin, are things which keep you trapped in the limited sense of self." Mm -hmm. that keep you trapped in the false nature and then cause you to live in an ungodly way. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Alan Watts, I think he described it as, as just simply being tasteless. Right. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's just important. It's just in bad taste, you know. <laughs> Gosh. So Jesus goes on uh, in another place. He says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. Whoever compels you to go a mile, go two. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Mm -hmm. You fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. In another place, he says, uh, criticizing the leaders of his day, all their works they do to be seen by men. 
They loved the best seats in feasts and synagogues. He who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. So Jesus is clearly communicating. We're not to be attached to image, pride, reputation, position, or power. (laughs) Uh, In another place, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Uh, Jesus is telling us, look, don't be attached to the future, right? Mm -hmm. This includes desired outcomes of our behavior, projected fears or fantasies that divert our attention from living in soul awareness. Uh, Get your mind out of the future. Uh, In another place, he says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right. See, what's he saying? Look, he's telling us don't be attached to the past, to unhealthy attachments, to past disappointments, do you see, and pain. Or in in the the Gita, (laughs) the yogi is entitled to action only and not to the fruits of his actions or her actions. You know, it's very similar. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, He goes on. If you bring your gift to the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will then forgive you. So what's the message? Don't be attached to anger, resentments, and offenses against us or others. Hmm. Um, What is it that keeps, that prevents people from forgiving? They're clinging to, they're holding on to. Do you see anger and resentments and offenses? Mm-hmm. And another place Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Why look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye. Um, he's telling us, don't be attached to judgments, comparisons, condemnations, or really even to get hung up on your own opinions. Do you see? Right. Um, in Matthew 10, he says, who, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's telling us not even to be attached to our own family members. Now, this can be a little disturbing for some folks. He's not saying don't love your family, don't care for your family. Um, the problem with family attachments is that they're often extremely influential in the formation of our egoic identity, in the formation of our false sense of self, particularly the interactions we have with family members and loved ones. And there has to be a separation from that at some point so we can be established in our true nature so that when we re-engage in these significant relationships, there's an expression of not egoic love, but true love that comes from pure soul awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy, in his uh, book, The Eternal Way, uh, to make sure that this wasn't misinterpreted as a, a, a lack of love, said not clinging to family members is easy when we are no longer in a dependent or controlling mode of behavior. Mm-hmm. When we can have affectionate, supportive relationships while allowing others the freedom to grow, express and fulfill their own destiny. The point is when we re-engage intimate relationships or family relationships or friendships 
from soul awareness, there's a fuller expression of love, not a lesser expression of love. Mm -hmm. But you don't want relationships with others to uh, be too influential in forming or keeping you stuck in a limited false sense of self. Mm -hmm. And then in this verse I quoted earlier, he who finds his life will lose it. What life? The, you know, the false life, the limited life. He who loses that false sense of self for my sake will find it, meaning the, the true nature. So, you know, Jesus is telling us that really all ego attachments, whether they're material, psychological, or emotional, must be surrendered to awaken fully into self and God realization. So when you put all these together, distill all these, what do you get? Jesus is instructing us not to be attached to material possessions, our bodies or the life of the body, these things that we call uh, sins, these uh, behaviors that reinforce the false sense of self, uh, not be attached to image, pride, reputation, position, power, the future, the past, anger and resentments, <laughs> judgments and comparisons, and relationships. Wow. Did Jesus teach non-attachment? <laughs> yes. Well, it, that reminds me of... Um... Chapter 13 um, of the Bhagavad Gita, I think it's uh, verse 7 through 11. It goes into absence of pride, freedom from hypocrisy, nonviolence, patience, honesty. And it goes on uh, indifference to objects of the senses, absence of egoism, remaining mindful of the misfortunes of birth, death, old age, disease, and pain, non-attachment, absence of clinging to family members or to one's dwelling place, constant even-mindedness, you know, it goes on in that way, which is exactly what you just said. Yeah. So when I got done with this little study and I kind of wrote all this stuff out, I just sat back and I thought, holy smokes, when you get right down to it, the, the way Jesus lived his personal life and the things that he taught can very comfortably be put in to these two categories of God communion in the practice of communion or meditation and the principle and practice of non-attachment. Mm -hmm. And and this principle and practice of non-attachment is most, again, most dramatically um, uh, dramatized and symbolized by this, this death on the cross, which then does what? Leads you into the fullness of, an, of new life in God. Mm -hmm. um, which is really indescribable. I mean, it, it, that's, I think that's the difficulty of it is that we can talk about what we've just described and how it leads up to the crucifixion, but then there's obviously the resurrection after that, but there's no way until you've actually gone through the process that one can truly understand what that really means. And you see? Absolutely. And now sometimes this teaching becomes distorted. Mm -hmm. And both the Gita and Yogananda and Roy Eugene Davis were very clear in making sure this didn't go off the rails. <laughs> so, you know, Yogananda said, well, does this mean I have to be a, you know, a naked renunciant yogi wandering around with no lodging, no clothes, no food, you see? Mm -hmm. Is that what that means? Well, no. The Gita is very clear that don't don't take this to mean that I'm not supposed to do anything but sit around or lay around. You know, inactivity is not the path. So Yogananda says the destruction of ego consciousness does not mean that we should live 
aimless lives, but that we should not limit ourselves by being identified with ego's attachments. We are not to throw away our possessions or not take care of the things we have or cease trying to possess what we really need, but in the course of performing our duties, we should eliminate the bondage of attachment. Mm -hmm. So, um, another place he says, uh, to one involved in the drama of relative life, attachment to success and fearful of failure, attached to good health and fearful of illness, attached to material existence and fearful of death, the endlessly varied human experiences appear to be the only reality when we're caught in the, the interplay of those attachments. He goes on to say, to one who is established in non-attachment, everything is perceived as God. Right. So um, are we supposed to just give everything away and walk around naked? No. Uh, it makes sense to have what you need to live responsibly and as comfortably as possible, but to not be attached to those things where spiritual life is neglected. Right. And the, the, the words you use there as comfortably as possible, that doesn't mean, Hey, I need the big screen TV and the nice Corvette. It means, you know, I have a, a warm place to live. I have good food and I have plenty of leftover time to do things such as go into prayer or meditation to fulfill that that uh that duty in a sense yeah and um you know roy taught that quite clearly and he lived that quite nicely mm -hmm. uh, he lived a simple productive comfortable life you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. didn't give a hoot about driving a new car um but he you know he wrote non-attachment is easy when we have right understanding and are established in awareness of soul we can then have and even enjoy relationships and relate to all aspects of life freely and appropriately. So at that point, possessions, activities, relationships aren't reinforcing the false and limited sense of self. They now become avenues for being able to express soul nature. Right. And uh, in the book, Vasista Yoga, you know, there's a, an emphasis, this line comes up over and over again, actually in, in multiple texts um, of, you know, simply work with what comes to you unsought. That, that, that terminology comes up. So even, that doesn't mean, like you said, just sit around. But if joy and joyous situations come into your life, well, then you celebrate and you have that joy, but you're not clinging to it such that when it passes, it's pulling you back into the past. Or if illness or death comes into your life, well, it's appropriate then to grieve and to be sad. Uh, but th the issue there is it's not on trying to prevent any of these things. It's, I guess, maybe more of a Buddhist term of, of not clinging to them, letting them come through and go out as they will. Right. Now, I have to admit, most people are uncomfortable with the discussion of non-attachment and the, the, the pushback you, you normally get is, um, you know, how can I have an enjoyable life or am I going to get bored? Will I have motivation? How can I be loving and caring if I'm not attached, you see? Mm -hmm. and, and again, I think the true principle is, it is ego attachments that weaken and limit our ability to love and live f life fully and completely. Right. In the, in the uh, Chandogya Upanishad, there's this fabulous 
passage. It says, it is true the body is perishable, but within it dwells the imperishable self. This body is subject to pleasure and pain. No one who identifies with the body can escape from pleasure and pain. Those who know they are not the body pass beyond pleasure and pain to live in abiding joy. Mm -hmm. Those who rise above body consciousness ascend to the transcendent light in their real form, the self. Now listen to this. In that state, free from attachment, they move at will, laughing, playing, and rejoicing. Mm -hmm. They know the self is not this body. Those who know the self and realize the self obtain all worlds and all desires. Um, so it is the, the purely non-attached person living in communion with God in, in self and God realization that can laugh and play and rejoice fully, completely, abundantly, because that is coming out of the fullness of of uh, divine life. You see, it's it's um, it has that quality of eternity to it because the the external attach ego attached kind of laughing and playing and rejoicing is just an interplay of pleasure and pain. Mm -hmm. Well, they're living fully present. You know, yes, pre present in the moment, present with what is, present with what is. Uh, so I think that's <laughs> that's the important and, and, part. And, and Yogananda's phrase of this was ever new joy, ever new bliss. It's ever present. It always feels new, and it, it doesn't fade or go away. And it's not opposed by painful things because it's not a you know an expression of the world of duality. It's a it's a there's a pureness in this kind of living, laughing, playing, rejoicing. Right. Um, <clears throat> I know we're short on time. You're going to have to go pretty soon. Is that correct? Sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, one last thing that kind of comes up around this, we're talking about sort of the joy of things and the joy of this experience. Um, and I'm reminded of some songs, devotional songs that uh, Yogananda, I'm pretty sure he composed them. Um, and I remember a line in particular, I think it was something like, um, you know, to the, to the sorrowful, how does that go? It, it, it's these, it's these, these ideas that <clears throat> when someone is sorrowful by being present there with them, not trying to change it, that that is also an important process of it, that, uh, honoring what is not just in the joy and not just in the things that we celebrate, but in whatever the experience requires. Um, how do you how do you get through to people that it's okay to be in these in these places where there is despair or difficulty and and just like the light comes and goes well the dark also comes and goes <clears throat> does this make sense the question I'm asking yeah and and so again I worked as a hospice chaplain for eight years or so and I think what allowed me to be productive and successful was I. You know, the biggest problem with grief and people who are supposed to help others in grief is that their own fears intrude into the process. And so mm -hmm. people are prone to say really unhelpful things to people that are grieving because the people talking to them are trying to have their own fear of loss. And so in trying to reassure the other person, they're saying to them the things that 
to, to reinsure themselves. Right. And because of my practice in, in, in meditation, the whole idea is to live every aspect of life with a purity and a fullness. So, so a serious loss occurs in your life or the loss of another. Well, you don't want to explain it away. You don't want to deny it. You don't want to rationalize it. You don't want to repress it. You want to experience it fully and completely, but in presence. And so I could sit with people uh, feeling in, in compassion, which means to suffer with, you see, you're actually feeling their suffering and sitting with them in the suffering that they are feeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I was criticized one time by a family member because I was sitting with the spouse of, of someone who had passed away and both she and I were holding hands and both she and I had tears coming down our face. Right. And, and uh, one of her relatives got mad at me, told me I was a terrible chaplain because <laughs> I was supposed to be encouraging her and giving her hope. I wasn't supposed to be sitting there crying, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I could feel the fullness of that emotion and sit in it with stability. Sit in it with the confidence that undergirding the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs of our experience in this life, there is a deeper reality that is good, holy, stable. Mm -hmm. And I could sit in that and at the same time experience fully the loss and the grief. Right. And the fact that and I found this to be very stabilizing and healing for people because they were having a hard time. They were getting kicked around by their grief and their loss. They know without a doubt, I'm getting it. Mm -hmm. I'm sensing it. I'm experiencing it, but I'm not being kicked around. Right. There's a stability within me because of awareness of the deeper reality that gave them stability and confidence. So yes, we're supposed to experience every aspect of life, honestly, fully, completely. And that comes from this whole foundation of non-attachment because through non-attachment is from what I hear you saying, you're recognizing that there is a reality, a something, an eternal self, which underlies all of this. And that when we're identified with the fact that someone dies or someone has something pleasant happen, that that is just like a wave on this greater reality. And if you're identified with that, that, that underpinning reality or that uh, ground of being, then you see it as it is. Just like when you're looking at a piece of artwork and if you're scanning over it, you might go over something that's dark and black and then something that's blue and red. And, but if you zoom out to get the bigger picture of the canvas, you see that that makes a beautiful picture. It's just when you're zoomed into that small sort of myopic viewpoint that you become overwhelmed by, oh, there's so much darkness here. It's so heavy and hard. Do you see? Absolutely. And I mean, this is an important point you bring up because normally when we talk about non-attachment, instinctively we talk about attachment to pleasurable things or successful things or things that build up one's ego and pride. Right. But the flip side it, there's a lot of people that are attached to grief, pain, trauma, tragedy, bad things that have happened in their lives, and they form a whole sense of self around that negative experience of mortal life. Right. And yeah, I, 
I, I can, from my own personal experience, I remember uh, when I was, well, still am, but when it was grieving Melissa's passing, I sort of had this meditation and it was almost as if she sort of appeared just sort of this presence and the words that came through were stand up for me. And, ah. and it wasn't what, what, what I took from that. It was like a, an imparting where it was like, knock it off. You know, I, this is, this was a natural process and, you know, I am free. And so stand up as in, you know, let go of this I, attachment of letting people see you sad all the time, live your life. But that's sort of what came through. Does this make sense? What I'm trying to say? Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting thing that popped into my mind. Yeah, no, you're, and I kind of left that out. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, and again, the Gita, you know, the, the person established in self and God realization is alike in pleasure and pain and hot and cold and so on and so forth. Right. There, there's a stability in the midst of, the, you know, this, this ebb and flow up and down movement of, of life and you know unless you are centered in god and non-attached your the tendency is to be buffeted by these things and disturbed and ruffled by these things well and, and one last thought i mean i i remember you told me you have to be somewhere so i apologize for keeping you <laughs> but one last, one last thought that popped into my mind one last thought that popped into my mind was that you know oftentimes when people read what you just said about being, um, you know, even minded in, in all circumstances, they often interpret that to mean they have to force themselves to be that way. And I think, I think there is a part that is required where you sort of have to get a hold of yourself. But I think what a lot of people miss is that if one is meditating well and communing well and, 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 and really going deep into the process, that that kind of experience actually becomes natural. It's not a forced thing. You're just like the idea of loving thy neighbor as thy en and, and thy enemies and everyone, essentially, that moves from I have to do it because it's the right thing to do to, well, that's just sort of how I feel inside. Like that's an appropriate thing to do. And, and this, yeah, this is the way you should live naturally out of soul awareness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll end with this. You got my mind, you got my mind and my chaplain work. Now, one of the, <laughs> one of the verses that, that uh, <clears throat> um, is most quoted, um, you know, at funeral services and memorial services and so forth is Psalm 23. And uh, li listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, this notion of wanting is, you know, at the root of the human condition and at the root of, of um, not experiencing the, the deeper sense of self. And then later this passage says, he restoreth my soul. So, when we have a restoration of soul awareness and the Lord is truly our shepherd, we're being led by divine nature, presence, and character, then we shall not want. You see, we don't live in a, an attitude, a perspective uh, of, of wanting, needing, clinging, grasping, mm -hmm. which, because it's always moving, is a state of instability. So... Um, yeah, this this teaching is everywhere. Yes, and uh, it's not easy, 
for the false, you know, for the limited uh, false sense of self to get this or to live it, but it becomes the natural state as one abides in divine presence and the true nature unfolds. Well, I, I appreciate the time that you have taken to, to speak with uh, everyone who's listening about all of this. And now I'm, now I'm brainstorming how we need to be having discussions on uh, prayer and faith. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so maybe in the future, if you're up for that, we can also have a discussion on, on cultivating those things. That'd be fine. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Phil. And uh, you have a wonderful day. And I look forward to speaking with you and hopefully seeing you soon. No, I love interacting with you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga. If so be that we suffer with him. The problem is people are afraid because they feel like this going to the cross is they're going to be alone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It is the sense of loneness, aloneness that, that makes suffering so fearful. And again, from the mystical point of view, you're not doing this alone. You're doing this with Christ in God. Yeah, but you can't, I mean, you really can't, at least from my experience, I could not have appreciated that until I got crucified and so it was the case. Uh, Do you see what I mean? I mean, like when we had that discussion about uh, the dark night of the soul, um, you know, going through sort of the issues with challenges to faith and whatnot related to Melissa's illness and passing, that was unbelievable to me. But once I got forced through that little, uh, you know, hole in the needle um, and came out the other side, and recovered, then I recognized, oh, it's true. There was, I was not alone, neither was Melissa alone going through that. And the resultant uh, sort of understanding that came because of going through that horrendous crucifixion type experience or dark night of the soul, I can look back and I can say, you're not alone, like you're saying. But if I or you would have said that to me before all this happened, I don't think I would have believed you. Now you might have even been whacking me. <laughs> exactly. So you, under, you, you understand the difficulty that I would, I would, certainly. So that, that's what I'm getting at because I find that that whole idea of the crucifixion and even when we think of, as we mentioned, the goddess Kali and so on, those are very accurate representations of what it feels like for the ego to go through it. So you can't just wipe it away and say, you know, it, it's going to be all right. It is going to be all right, but you still have that that challenge to overcome, which seems so gruesome and so horrendous. You know, that's the difficulty that I, I'm trying to figure out. How do you help people say, hey, you know what? Like in the, the description in um, Autobiography of a Yogi where uh, that dis- the disciple meets Babaji and Babaji says, you're not ready. And he says, well, what do I need to do? He says, well, you have to jump off this cliff. And the fellow says, well, sure. And he does it, you know, like to have very few people have that kind of faith. So that's why I thought this uh, trying to get into, well, how do you, 
develop that faith. <laughs> what do you laugh from that? <laughs> you, you, you brought to mind that story where the guy falls off the cliff and he hangs onto a branch and he's, it's, the branch is getting weaker and weaker and he's worried about falling. So he yells up for help. You know, help, help. Is there anybody up there? And then he hears the voice. Yes, my son. He goes, oh, who is it? He says, it's me, the Lord, your God. He goes, oh, I'm so grateful you're here to help me. What should I do? What should I do? And he says, let go, my son. Have faith. I will take care of you. There's this long pause. And he goes, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> so... Uh, Anyway, I, I used to, I to the best of my ability. Whether it's, I, I always try to communicate to people that are in suffering, um, uh, you're not alone. Whether they get it or not, or can experience it or not, it's a different story. But I used to, when I would do funerals, a lot of military funerals and other funerals, at the graveside, I would take the extra time instead of just doing my thing and leaving. I would wait the whole time while the family, you know, put the flowers on and they lowered the casket and they mingled and they talked and I, I would wait the extra hour for people. One of the hardest things to do is to leave that loved one alone in that cemetery and to right. drive away. It produces so much guilt. And I used to, stand there in other words when they would get in their cars and go to leave i would go back to the grave side and stand there and so when they drove off their loved one wasn't alone i was there All right and now you know did that have a impact i hope it did i don't know that it did but i, I just didn't want people to feel like i'm leaving them alone you know what mm -hmm. i'm saying right um well, again, this brings me back to that whole idea of a discussion on, on faith and prayer, you know, because, for example, uh, going back to Melissa, even when she was passing, we prayed twice a day together. And even though that prayer didn't spare her life, there was such a presence that I had never experienced before in those moments that made me recognize after everything had passed that the point of the prayer wasn't, hey, you know, this divine right. presence is healing Melissa's body. It was no, not, neither of you, nor is she alone. Like that is, that is what is there throughout this whole thing and will be there beyond it. Like, I think I, I keep trying to figure out how can one cultivate that sense. And I think it is by learning to meditate, meditate well, right? Because that's where that presence comes in that the person has the direct experience of it. Yeah. And I would argue that, that the deepest form of prayer is meditation yeah not not asking for something but right. being able to know like you said if you know that you are not alone if you know that the lord is your shepherd and you know it and you're not questioning it and you're not doubting that you're being guided in the wrong direction there is a tremendous sense of peace and then it seems like you can probably bear anything right i mean yeah, the then, then you move with the flow of life, whatever it is. Right. And that's true non-attachment because you're moving with the flow of life, not clinging to either the good or the bad. Just the life, you become this sort of life of God in a way. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's well expressed. Anyway. All right. Well, now we have some seeds for another conversation. Should you choose to uh, accept that? <laughs> <laughs> Your, your, your mind is too fertile. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I'm, uh, yeah, anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs>